Thank you, Aaron. It's good to be here with you this morning and to look at God's Word together. Um, as Aaron said, it's, it's uh, Covenant's a special place uh, to me and to my family. My wife Jody and I are very thankful for Covenant. It's, you all have been a great blessing to us in our years that we were able to serve here on pastoral staff. And, and also on behalf of Lincoln Square Presbyterian, I want to th- send a, a, a greetings and also say thank you uh, for a Covenant's vision for church planning and generous support that have been given to the Lincoln Square. Uh, we're very thankful uh, for the blessing that Covenant has been uh, to our congregation. So it's good to be here with you, and I'm thankful for a chance to look at God's Word together. And in the, this fall at Lincoln Square, we've been looking at the Beatitudes um, that we heard read in the Gospel lesson. And so I thought I'd share one of those uh, sermons with you to look at one of the Beatitudes. And whether you're familiar with the Beatitudes or whether you just heard them in the reading, uh, we're struck, one of the things we're struck by is the paradox. Right away you hear, blessed are the poor in spirit, or blessed are those who mourn, or blessed are those who persecuted. And right away we realize that this is being talked about in a way that's different than how the world often speaks of blessing or of happiness. And so in this paradox, we're invited to think about the way that Jesus invites us to be. And that's how I want us to consider the Beatitudes this morning, this a, a way of being, a way of being that is in contrast to much of the way the world operates. And in light of that, it's a chance for us to examine our hearts and our minds, examine our lives. Do we reflect this way of being that Jesus is leading us in? Uh, if you're like me, though, it's, it's challenging at times to see ourselves clearly. It's hard to see myself and to know kind of what's happening. And so we need help at, to see, to examine. And one of the ways that we can better understand ourselves or see ourselves is through contrast. And one way to get at that is We've been looking at the Beatitudes in contrast with the traditional vices. Poor in spirit versus pride. Meekness versus vainglory. Hunger and thirst for righteousness against sloth. Mercy against greed. Pure of heart against lust. Peacemaking against wrath. And courage against gluttony. And this morning, I want us to consider the contrast between mourning and envy. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This blessing is in contrast to those who envy. For envy is those who mourn over the blessedness of another. Envy is to mourn over another's good. So let's look again. I'm going to read the Matthew passage, the Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. That blessing, and then I'll read Second Corinthians chapter one. It's imprinted in your order of worship. In Matthew five, Jesus said, "Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted." And then we hear in Second Corinthians chapter one, verse three through eleven, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction." so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. 
For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've gathered us here, that you've called us to gather as your people in your presence. We're interrupting and changing our daily routine to come and gather here. And we pray that your spirit would meet us. And by your word, that your spirit would minister to us, that we may respond in faith and repentance. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, the sermon will have two parts. The first part, we'll look at the Matthew 5, verse 4, where we consider this idea of blessed are the, those who mourn. And then the second part, we'll look at the Second Corinthians passage and consider the promise of comfort. So Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus gives us a chance in these words to consider the experience of mourning. And I want to highlight two types of mourning. One I'll call sorrow, and one I will call envy. These two have different natures, and they have different hopes. Sorrow, we know this. Sorrow is deep distress brought on by significant loss or difficulty suffered by you directly or by one who is important in your life. And sorrow longs for comfort. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And in these words, he's inviting us to know that he's experienced this world himself, and he's telling us that we will have sorrow. And it's worth just taking a moment to affirm and to remind ourselves that to be a Christian, to be a Christian does not mean that you are unaffected by the things that happen in you or around you. To be a Christian is not marked as the one who can handle whatever comes his or her way with no problems. Rather, Christians experience sorrow and are affected by the world in which we live. And as we consider sorrow, we can think of a handful of words that give shape to that experience in our lives. We can think of the word goodbye. When we mourn leaving a place or leaving a season of life, or saying goodbye, or someone leaving us. We can think of the word failure. We mourn our struggles in school or at work, relationships and marriage. We sorrow over missing an opportunity, getting passed over, regretting foolish choices. The word mistreatment. We are hurt by others. You and your experience and your voice are disregarded, dismissed. We can think of the past. We mourn and we struggle in the present due to past trauma, past pain, past abuse, past words, past events are present today affecting us. Or we can think of the word never. We mourn the loss of ones we love. Nicholas Wolterstorff, writing about the death of his adult son, says, never again to be here with us never to sit with us at table, never to travel with us, never to laugh with us, never to cry with us, 
never to embrace us. All the rest of our lives we must live without him. We suffer this sorrow in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds, and sometimes we show this sorrow to those around us and sometimes we keep it hidden. And this morning that I'm calling sorrow can be blessed, Jesus says, it can be blessed because it hollows out a place in us for God and for God's comfort. While painful, it affirms an emptiness in us before our God. But there is another type of mourning, not marked by an emptiness, but marked by a grabbing, a holding, a demanding. And this closes us. And this is envy. We mourn over the blessings of another, mourn over another's good. A magazine that I am familiar with often lists books that they are suggesting to be read. And in a recent uh, issue, they asked authors to list children's books or children's series that are good for adults and children to read together to talk about things that are significant, larger issues of life. And in that list, one of the series that was mentioned is the Berenstein Bears. Maybe some of you are familiar with that series. My kids had a few growing up. It's the story of a bear family that lives in a tree. It's this tree that looks normal but has, you know, all sorts of rooms in it, this magical tree. And there's the papa bear, mama bear, brother and sister bear, and the littlest one is honey bear. All sorts of stories, some serious and some silly, but there is one that came to mind called the Berenstein Bears and the green-eyed monster. And sister gets envious when brother bear gets a new bike for his birthday. And she wants that bike for herself. In the book, she has a dream where a literal green-eyed monster appears to her, talking to her in her dream and telling her to secretly ride her brother's bike. Well, as you might imagine, the book unfolds. She does ride the bike, and of course, she wrecks the bike and damages it, leading to a family discussion. Why am I telling you about the Bernstein Bears? I'm telling you this as a way to think about what is it, what is envy? The envy is similar to being jealous. Envy is similar to greed. The one thing about envy is that we see not only the desire to have, but the desire to have the very thing the other person has. Why should he get that nice bike? I want it. I want that bike for myself. I want that experience. I want that good. I want that blessing. That job, that house, that appearance, that reputation or acceptance. Envy shows itself in a number of ways, feeling offended at another's talents or their good or their success, unnecessary competition or having pleasure at another's difficulties or being critical towards another. And all this starts with a murmur in our heart, but it can grow and grow to becoming open malice, open competition, open dislike. As one ancient author writes, as a moth gnaws a garment, so does envy consume a man. Well, sorrow and envy have different natures and different goals. Sorrow longs for comfort, but envy has its own logic. And the envy's logic says that I will feel better. I won't be sad when I can climb up and take hold of that blessing that I'm missing. 
or I won't feel sad when I can make that other person be as low as I am, that they can feel my pain, feel my lack, feel my loss. And envy in this logic always leads to being alone. It always leads to a fragile and temporary peace. We believe that we can be happy. We believe that we'll stop being sad when we can get the blessing that another person has or when we can somehow undercut it or criticize it. I want us to hear this morning in the Beatitudes that Jesus offers that the logic of the kingdom is different. In God's economy, those who mourn are blessed because they have witnessed the world's suffering. They have felt their own lack of power or they have felt the depth of their own sin. And in this sorrow, they know an emptiness before God. And it's in this place, in that emptiness, that we may meet Jesus, the man of sorrows, and hear his words, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, the first part is a chance for us to think about the different roles of mourning or different ways mourning works itself in our heart. In the second part of the sermon, I want us to look at the Second Corinthian passage and consider the promise of comfort. You might have noticed that the Second Corinthians chapter, chapter 1 opens much the same way of Paul's other letters with a greeting and an introduction and thanksgiving. But do you notice the theme in these opening verses? It's, it's hard to miss. Maybe you heard it as I was reading it. It's almost difficult to read because the word comfort keeps coming up over and over again. Ten times in just a handful of verses, Paul says the word comfort. And given what he writes, we can ask, what did Paul experience? What happened to him? And we don't know the details, but we know that he emerged from his time in Asia, battered and bruised. He was imprisoned and mistreated in Ephesus, physically beaten, imprisoned and rejected. He and his message viewed as a threat to the city. I don't know about you or how you think of Paul and his letters. It's possible, though, that we can imagine Paul as this kind of superhuman. This person who is able to kind of move through whatever circumstances come his way, who is able to handle whatever happens. Forget that he was a human being like you and me. Do you see that in his mistreatment here as he writes, Paul came to a point where not only he thought he was going to be killed, but where his own spirits reached such a low that he felt sorrow and fear and anxiety in the depths of his heart. Do you notice the language he uses? He was utterly burdened. He was in despair. One author writes, Paul writes as one, overwhelmed experiencing a breakdown the load is too heavy his personal resources insufficient and worn to nothing it's in these ruins in this experience of difficulty and pain that paul speaks of god with the title of comfort do you notice how he refers to god the father of mercies and god of all comfort It's in the ruins that he encounters comfort as central to the gospel. The Greek term here, translated comfort, literally means to call to one side, to come alongside of. And interestingly, in the broader culture of the day, the Greco-Roman world, that word wasn't normally translated as comfort. 
Rather, it was viewed through the lens of urging someone or exhorting them to get back to their duties. Grief was looked down upon in that culture, and the thought was not that someone needs comfort, but rather someone needs a word to get going again. Get back in there. Take care of what you're supposed to take care of. Do your job. But Paul does not follow that Greco-Roman way. He follows the Old Testament tradition of speaking of God and speaking of comfort. In Isaiah alone, we hear God identify himself saying, I, I am he who comforts. Also, he says, my, to my people, I am like a mother comforting her child. The whole idea of this word is that one person is being with another, present, speaking words that give courage, new hope, which alter the way we see the next moment or the next day. And God is the God of all comforts because he meets his people, draws near to where they are, and brings new strength, brings comfort in our sorrows. And I want us to see this morning, take a moment to see that in Jesus, God reveals himself as the God of all comforts. And in Jesus, there are two ways in particular that God comforts you and me. Through his words and through his body. God comforts us with his words. Think for a moment about your experience of being comforted, how important one's words are to you. Words of empathy, words of being nearby, words of speaking encouragement. The gospel of Christ is a proclamation of words. And in this proclamation, Jesus acknowledges our sorrows. He acknowledges our loss, our wounds, But he also gives witness that there is something greater, greater than the one who has hurt us, greater than our experience, greater even than death. Do you notice that Paul refers to the resurrection in this passage? They trusted not in themselves, but in the God who raises the dead. God's words, God's witness proclaim the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus says that goodbye that failure, that mistreatment, that the past, that even death, they will not be the final word in your life. No, the final word is Jesus, the one who draws near, and his victory over sin and death. God's words acknowledge our sorrow, but they also speak beyond our sorrow. The God of all comfort took on flesh, the eternal word took on flesh, and was deemed a fool subject to the realities of this life and put to death. But that's not the final story. The eternal word, the God of all comfort, was raised to new life. Therefore, there is a sacred witness to you and to me. I hope that you can see. Do you see that how the resurrection speaks hope while not negating our experience? It speaks hope, words of hope to you and to me, witness without negating our sorrow. God comforts us through words in the gospel of Jesus. But God also comforts us in his body. He offers his body as comfort. At the heart of Paul's words and prayer is the Christian promise that what is true of Jesus becomes true of his people. We share in Christ. This language goes beyond words. It speaks of union. Christ died, so his people die in him, sharing in his sufferings. 
Christ rose again, so his people rise again in him, knowing the power of the resurrection to comfort and to heal in part now and fully in the day of resurrection. I am not good at gardening. I'm not good at growing plants of any kind, really. But this last year, I thought I'd give it a try and plant some things in the parkway by my house. But this fall, maybe this is your case as well, there was a, a large storm that flooded my street, and the street flooded to the point of covering the parkway and even the sidewalk. And so my little flower bed was destroyed by the flood. Now my, fr- my, my children gave me a hard time by saying when this happened, oh no, dad's garden of weeds has been lost. This is a true, true criticism on their part. <laughs> it was mostly just weeds. But oh, your garden of weeds has been lost. So I do not know how to grow things or really to plant. But I still want to share something from the world of plants, this, world engra- this word engrafting. I not know how to do this, but I know the concept. In the world of plants, a weaker plant can be grafted to a stronger one. At the point of incision, at the point of cuts, two plants are bound together, the weaker plant drawing life and energy from the stronger one through the incision. Their attachment and union is at the point there. And over time, the two plants become one. John Calvin uses this image of engrafting to speak of our union with Jesus. The Spirit stitches together the believer in Christ. The wounds of Jesus are the place of our union. It is in our wounds and his wounds, his suffering and our suffering, that we are grafted together, bound together in his body. You see, Christ receives, feels, touches our pain and sorrow, and we are invited, we are, through his grace, connected to his body and his scars and his marks and his mourning. God offers us comfort in his words and his body. And interestingly, this exchange, this pattern of connection is not only for Jesus and his people, but something we experience with one another. In love, God comforts us in Christ. Now in love, we are sent out seeking to move towards one another to offer comfort with words and with our lives and our actions. And we know this can happen in all sorts of ways, thousands of ways in which we acknowledge each other's sorrows, that we are present, that we draw near and offer words and offer our lives, not to solve problems, but to offer comfort. We are called by God to love our neighbors, to love one another. And this love in the scriptures is described as rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. This is the opposite of envy. The envious person weeps at those who rejoice and rejoices at those who weep. It does not seek comfort. It seeks to take what another one has. And this way of dealing with sadness always leads to isolation and separation. In New York City, across the street from one another is St. Patrick's Cathedral and Rockefeller Center. Maybe you've been to one or both of those places. In these two historic settings, there are two statues, the statue of Atlas and the the Pieta, statue of Jesus with his mother Mary. The statue of Atlas, the story of Atlas of this Greek myth, Atlas attempted to overthrow the gods of Mount Olympus. He wanted that spot. He wanted that power, that status. And as a result of his envy and pride, Atlas was condemned to alone shoulder the celestial sphere 
for all eternity. If you've seen the sculpture, you see that he literally, it literally shows Atlas alone carrying the burden of the world. In contrast, across the street in the shadows of St. Patrick Cathedral is an opposite image, the Pieta, where Jesus, our comfort, having already sacrificed himself to God's will on the cross for our sin and sorrow, is represented in the sculpture as broken, emaciated, laid out on Mary's lap as she weeps for him. While Atlas is alone trying to grasp, here's Jesus, God in flesh, not grasping for himself, but sharing our tears and our sorrows. The world will encourage you and will encourage me towards envy. You will be happy when you grab the blessing that the other has. But Jesus in his body, in his tears, in his beatitude offers a different way. In Christ, we say with him, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would minister to us, that we would see our hearts, and that we would turn away from false hopes to find true and lasting hope and comfort in you, Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.